I must tell you what really happened that day. Intent and insurrection was never our mission. But as the lies spread, pain gathered and our hope began to fade. Our siblings, our children, our parents were caged. A Costa Mesa man is behind bars, accused of playing a violent role in the January 6th The FBI is offering $15,000 in their search. See, I can stand under an umbrella. That's what you're writing, okay? Solemn day on Capitol Hill, outside of the chamber, because it's also the second anniversary of the January 6th attack on Capitol. The feds have charged more than 800 people. More than 1,000 people who have been charged in connection with the January 6th Capitol riot. Could this really happen? Mm. Do these folks who kind of look like us, do they represent a threat to our democracy? We got a uh, regular coffee, a tall, a uh, little room for cream. I began investigating January 6th back in 2021. have since traveled across America, exploring how this country has changed because of January 6th. In 2023, I gained exclusive access to 40,000 hours of security videos from Capitol Hill. Video that we're watching was never shown to his defense team. So his lawyers didn't have this no. video. What do you think the footage shows about the way the media has been covering it? It's going to change narratives no matter what your political perspective is. The story I'm telling is one of two-tier justice in America. An open wound that runs much deeper than we realize. 9-11 is nothing compared to January 6th. Calling the January 6th investigation the biggest investigation in FBI history. We've had more domestic terrorism arrests than the prior year. That's a total lie. What we're about to discover on this incredible journey is equal parts shocking and inspiring. I arrived at this point where I had no other choice. We sued the FBI. Stories that challenge prevailing narratives and point the compass toward the truth. Each of these has very interesting stories. John Strand was doing security for Dr. Simone Gold, just standing by, making sure no one attacked her. It was about 10 or 11 in the morning on a Monday. We were at work on a conference call.
the meeting was just shattered by this screaming, FBI, FBI, and smashing on the walls. I, I, it sounded like they were going to beat the wall in. So we just froze in place for a minute, and they kept banging and kept screaming. I thought, should I open the door? But it didn't seem safe. Before I could do anything else, they literally broke the door in pieces and, and rushed inside with assault rifles. I, I realized I have red laser dot sights on my chest right now. First opportunity that I actually had for uh, January 6th subjects to be arrested was in August of 2022. An email was circulated around our office telling everybody that the following week that SWAT team was going to be used to arrest one of the subjects. I'm not a shrinking violet when it comes to, to using SWAT, and it's something that I did for five years. But the subject that SWAT was going to be used to arrest, regardless of his alleged crime, had been in contact with the FBI, had already been interviewed by the FBI. That to me was atypical. The Munn family of, of Borger, Texas, was one of the cases that we studied. They were subjected to SWAT raids on three houses simultaneously in two states. July 12th, I believe it was. We were woken to the FBI on our doorstep. They had the whole block blocked off. FBI, open up! They removed Tom out of the house first. They took him out the front entrance here, handcuffed him. Alien, stop what you're doing! They grabbed a hold of me and pulled me out of the house. They put us in separate vehicles. Then they took our three teenage daughters out. Whatever they had on, they did not allow them to put anything further on. The FBI was holding guns and a battering ram, and it looked like they were going to hit the door. He trying to bring me out of the house, and I had pushed him back, and I had said that I am not dressed and not to come into the house. Um, because do you like, seriously okay. need five FBI agents for a little girl? number of times we asked for warrants, but we were never issued that. I've arrested over 150 violent criminals, never had to use SWAT. That really is the utmost, uh, highest level of enforcement. The officers coming in were amped up. They were very, very intense. They have all this tactical gear on, glasses, masks, helmets, rifles. But you can see their eyes squinting. And they honestly almost seemed very, very concerned, like they were in danger. So we turned around and got on the ground and got handcuffed and shackled by the ankles. And, you know, just pulled out the door. They sorted through the house for the next two hours. The next day, transferred us to a federal detention center in West LA. Major developments in the prosecution of those rioters 
involved in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Former FBI supervisor has been arrested for his part in the January 6th U.S. Capitol. I've been a journalist for almost 40 years. It just seemed to have real appeal to, to do research and dig into things and then to see it in print. past three decades, I have traveled around the world, writing for local and national newspapers, and most recently, the Epic Times. Love human interest stories. In 2021, we made part one of the real story of January 6th, the most photographed and video recorded event in U.S. history. We took a deep dive into what truly happened on that day. Started out as a protest, uh, a large gathering to hear President Trump speak. To date, I have written hundreds of stories about January 6th. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized I had barely scratched the surface. January 6th is a watershed event that touches virtually every aspect of American life. What really led me into this job was that search for truth, because the need for it is so great. Steve, this is Joe Hanneman calling from the Epic Times. Now we're looking into the aftermath of that fateful day. Honest journalism is difficult to find right now. It's like a threatened commodity. Not that January 6th protesters didn't do things wrong, because there were plenty of them that did stupid things. And law. But it's keeping that in context. And context has been missing from the first day I started working on this. I have an article here from CNN in January 2022 calling the January 6th investigation the biggest investigation in FBI history. And there are more than 1,100 arrests and they show no signs of, of slowing down. We don't have the manpower from the dozens of sources familiar with the Justice Department's January 6th investigation. To get a full picture of the investigations, I wanted to know how the FBI has allocated its resources in the past three years and what it all means. I'm heading to the Heritage Foundation to find out. We sued the FBI for their accounting of agent man hours. The data that showed January 6th, the FBI went full board. The Washington field office completely dedicated all their man hours towards January 6th and then surged well above their usual man hours. We asked for the numbers from January 6th, that, that month of January, and then the preceding year when the Black Lives Matter riots were, were ravaging Washington, D.C. What we found was that the FBI attributed, I think, 16,000 more hours to total investigations as it relates to January 6th. You're seeing the FBI, two years after an event, still going out around the country, breaking down people's doors over simple trespassing charges. Arrest made today by the FBI. Sue noon, a former FBI agent was arrested in Oregon for his This is the new norm of federal law enforcement. 
I was surprised to learn just how much FBI manpower was pulled off violent crime cases to investigate January 6th. Behind the FBI's arrest tactics after January 6th, what's the real story? We interviewed the whistleblowers from the FBI. As soon as I learned what some of these fellas were going through, I knew that we needed to sit down with them. Steve Friend, a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI to me was the NFL of law enforcement. I joined the FBI because I wanted to put bullies and bad guys in jail. In my opinion, if the FBI is the bully, that doesn't change my obligation. It doesn't change my oath. Gerardo Boyle was somebody I'd heard about quite some time ago. His case was quite a bit different than Steve Friend's. My early days in the FBI, I was assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, in the Kansas City Division in the Wichita Resident Agency. I was a police officer. I was an FBI agent. If I was in an instance like that where people are battering me, I would want that person arrested and tried to the extent of the law. It's irrational for FBI agents or people at large to say everything is super black and white, like nobody on January 6th should be charged with anything, or everybody should be charged with the worst type of charges we can drum up. Both of those viewpoints are incorrect. I transferred to Florida in 2021 with the understanding that my position was going to be focused on child exploitation, human trafficking, child pornography investigations. I was moved over to the JTTF, focusing on domestic terrorism. Essentially, it meant I was going to be working almost entirely on January 6th matters. And that's when I really had a red flag go up. Open the door! The FBI searched a house on a normally quiet street on the Jersey Shore. The suspect's neighbors first heard FBI, let's see your hands, and then saw more than a dozen armed agents swarm a Costa Mesa townhouse. When January 6th related leads and cases started occurring, the FBI treated it as the biggest investigation that they've ever done. My specific case that I was assigned, it was based on an anonymous tip. And based on my previous experience in law enforcement, I knew that anonymous tips don't hold a ton of weight. Without corroboration by a law enforcement officer, that tip's essentially worthless. I get a facial recognition match for my John Doe. I'm looking at the picture that they claimed was my guy and I'm looking at his driver's license photo. And these two people look nothing alike. My guy was bald, and the guy in the picture had a full head of hair, and he was also about 150 pounds lighter than my guy. And I'm like, something's not right here. Something's not right with this at all. Eventually, I get a hold of the person in, at the Quantico Lab who made the facial recognition match and he tells me that he had received a different photo. Well, it turned out that that photo was somewhere between 20 and 25 years old. But you can't use a 25-year-old photo and then claim that it's a match. That's insane. You can't do that for any investigation. Like, legally, I can't do that. 
Now like my spidey sense is like in full activation because I'm like, they really want this information bad and it doesn't make sense as to why. But clearly they're pushing at this point to open as many of these cases as you can. I had already made protected disclosures to my chain of command and they were simply falling on deaf ears. I don't know every agent in the FBI. I know a fair amount of them. They all agree that what the FBI has done with January 6th is inconsistent with its values. They frankly object to what we're doing. From what the FBI whistleblowers told me, the federal investigation into January 6th has serious problems. What I've learned is only the beginning. I'm greatly worried for my children who are young adults. You look down the road and you wonder just what are they going to be facing? Will they grow up in a society that is anywhere near as free as what I experienced? It's important because of what has happened to constitutional rights, that people understand what's happening and why, and how the law is being used to prosecute people. I needed to dig deep to get a true look at January 6th arrests and prosecutions. If the situation alarms these FBI agents, just what is happening to our constitutional protections? Have we lost our cherished freedoms? Are we losing control of our justice system? It might be something from an anonymous tip where there's no cell phone, GPS information, no facial recognition software. The FBI is still knocking on that person's door. Joe Hanneman, nice uh, to oh, meet you. Oh, Tom Mudd. Uh, this is my wife, Dawn. Dawn. Nice, nice to meet you. you. Um, welcome to our home. Well, thank you in. for having me. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. My name is Dawn Munn. I have been a traveling nurse for the last uh, four years. Early February, our daughter was at work, and an FBI agent left a message with her asking for her to contact him. We made the phone call back to the officer and we never heard from him again. We figured this really had nothing to do with us. I wouldn't have understood why they needed to do a raid. They could have just knocked on the door. Why did it have to be you at the door at, at daybreak with a battering ram and, you know, on your full tactical gear and M4s? I was involved in January 6th where one of our cases ended up in an arrest. Based on the information we had to include video, it looked like that person had broken the law. But Granny, who probably came in at the tail end, foolish? Yeah, foolish to go in even though you're standing behind the velvet rope. Misdemeanor trespass at best. Are we really going to throw the book at Granny? FBI, open up! FBI, we have a warrant! Open the door! 
What's your impression of how the FBI has handled apprehension of suspects in this case? In my 21 plus years of the Justice Department, I never saw a dynamic entry or even an arrest warrant used on a misdemeanor. We don't put first-time offenders in jail for misdemeanors. We give them probation. They abandoned that rationale in with the January 6 cases. Those involved must be held accountable, and there is no higher priority for us at the Department of Justice. While I'm aware that an arrest warrant is a legal order from a judge, I also have uh, an oath to protect the Constitution, and I felt that us being outside the, the rules with following our, our case procedures uh, was a potential breach of the Sixth Amendment for due process. I met with two assistant special agents in charge, ASACs, in Jacksonville, addressed my concerns with problems with abuse of power. They voiced back to me that I was insubordinate, that I was being a, a bad team player. They told me that they would be in touch. So I, I drove home. And uh, three and a half hours later, received an email telling me that I was not allowed to report to work the next day due to my unwillingness to participate in January 6th and that I was going to be considered absent without leave. 9-11 is nothing compared to January 6th. And the fact that the FBI and the rest of the government, if they are not on the same sort of war footing that we were on in the weeks and months and years after 9-11, shame on everyone. Violent, deadly insurrection on the Capitol nine months ago. There was a deadly insurrection that the right wing is trying to cover up. Deadly insurrection. That's how history may record January 6th. <laughs> The fallout of January 6th changed the way we view our fellow citizens. It defined how many people are hated and why. After two years, I find myself still finding new source materials to put together a fuller picture of how violence evolved on that day. Were they subverting our constitutional republic or were they exercising their constitutional rights? We submitted a spreadsheet with close to 100 video clips that we were looking to obtain from the House Committee. To date, through all of our visits, we've obtained about 50% of what we asked for, and we are still waiting. Most of this video has never been aired publicly. There is gonna be a lot of very newsworthy things for us to look at. So when did they actually start throwing things in here? Like, do we know the exact moment? This was about 1.20. These both had concussion capability, and they also released uh, tear gas. And eventually, as you saw here, this I think was the first one where a protester picked up uh, a flaming round and, and sent it right back. In this area here, on the north side of that west front, in an hour, you had 40 uh, explosive munitions going off in this group. Nobody left. So they're not dispersing? No, the there was no, not only no disbursement, but eventually there was a push forward. That's what drove all of the police into the Capitol. And even some of the officers that were the most prolific users of these explosive grenades, eventually we've seen body cam where he said, all this is doing is, is making them angry. Not only that, we're taking out one. 
multiplying them by hitting them. A black swan event is an event that occurs that spirals out of control because it's completely unanticipated and the parties involved are reacting in a way that is escalatory. And so 250,000 uh, very passionate Americans show up in the Capitol. The Capitol Police and Metro PD were undermanned. I'm ashamed of you! And there were instigators and agitators. And they were able to take advantage of the passions of the crowd and get everybody riled up. When the young man got shot in the face with, with a rubber bullet or a pepper ball or whatever he was, that I think aggravated the crowd. Then the police escalated again by throwing gas into the crowd. Then, of course, the physical violence starts happening. That escalates. It spreads throughout the crowd. That's the very definition of a black swan event. Carly, is this your book? Yes. What you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to trace this over so you know how. Then you're going to recreate this line on this line. I grew up as a bit of a history nut. Even my bedroom walls, I had a copy of the Constitution Declaration of Independence on it. I was enthralled with it all as a kid. And these guys grew up listening to me ranting about how important that Constitution is. There had never been anything like this ever in history. Its importance is second only to the Bible. How many, how many sides does a triangle have? When I was in school, we still had Constitution class. They don't have that anymore. They don't teach about how we got to be where we're at, what we had to go through to get where we're at. And if we don't take a responsibility for it and protect it, you're gonna lose it. That was the whole premise behind that trip. I had met the nicest people that I had there. It was almost like I knew these people beforehand. Like my heart was full. I didn't feel like anxious or cold. I still get shivers just thinking about it. <laughs> I can't really explain it. I must let you know what really happened that day. It rings through our head a price we still have to pay. The police had already been shooting tear gas as we were approaching. We heard several people scream. The crowd just kept pushing and you almost got kind of like tunneled into what would have been the broken window. Tom went through the window and assisted the kids through and he said, let's just find a safe place for the kids. Tom, there's the rest of them right there. We didn't quite understand what was going on. We got back to the hotel. One of the kids turned the TV on. 
It looked like Beirut. We all stood there, just dumbfounded. This is now effectively a riot. 1349 hours declaring it a riot. Disgraceful scenes in the U.S. Congress. Shameful behavior by President Trump. It is a shame in front of the world. A deliberate assault on democracy by a sitting president and his supporters. The world is watching. One of the most troubling questions from January 6th is whether there were provocateurs or suspicious actors in the middle of the crowd. Retired radio journalist Bobby Powell has been trying to blow the whistle for three years with video evidence he shot on the east patio of the Capitol. I don't care if you're carrying an American flag or wearing a Trump hat. Nobody was going into the United States Capitol through a broken window during a riot on my watch. You know, I was there as a reporter. I got down to the Capitol just before two, and the west side was already under attack. And as soon as I get up to the top of the Capitol steps, I hear uh, uh, banging and crashing to my right. So that's really good footage there that you want to see. I turn my camera around, and there's a man pulling that window completely from its frame. He asked me, why don't you guys open up the rest of it? And uh, I said, because that would probably be illegal. So, you know, it was clear from the things that he said to me that his intention was to open up that window and get people to go inside. I'm right there at the precipice of the Columbus doors when I hear a man in my left ear yelling, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. Now I feel his hands on my back pushing me inside. My camera turns around, and by the grace of God, I capture good video of this guy holding the doors open with a, with a pole. As soon as I got everything together, I put it together a nice little package, and I sent it to the FBI on January 15th. And to this day, he has not been identified. I don't care about money. I want this crime solved. They were calm. They were cold as ice. Okay, they knew exactly what they were doing. They acted like they were supposed to be there. Who are these men? Why have their images never been uploaded to the FBI database? Matter of fact, I've got the literal receipts right here in my pocket. United States Postal Service sending these thumb drives out 20 at a time. Reporters, politicians, they're just ignored. And it's really making me angry. I've given this video to everybody with a pulse in media. But nobody wants to talk about my two guys. They don't want to talk about the 80 other guys that attorney Brad Geyer has found with, with his team of attorneys. So at about 157 or so, a group of provocateurs broke away from about midway on the steps in the West, strafed the north side of the Capitol, and started gathering at the bike racks those bike racks were taken down in a coordinated fashion. It took 40 seconds. Meanwhile, directly to the east of the step, there were hundreds of people stacked in there that included provocateurs and, and suspicious actors. And they and arrived at roughly the same time 
as the group that came from the Northeast. We've worked with experts in that space, the suspicious actors that we've flagged as meriting further investigation. They're provoking police at the architectural stage. There's probably as few as six to eight people who actually removed the barriers in that Northeast. And had you not had them there to remove the barriers, the crowd behind would never have just moved to fill the space. Very few people had requisite intent to actively go and trespass. To most people, the vast majority of people who entered, they thought they had permission to do so. Five members of a Texas family today facing charges related to the January 6th riot at the Capitol. It's the Munn family. All five family members now face multiple federal charges. What Dawn Munn, the mother, said at sentencing, in her plea for leniency, she emphatically leaned in again on her questions about the 2020 election, saying she still has questions, still wants answers, and it was those questions that brought her here. I pulled up my Facebook, and a neighbor had put a post of seeing our whole family hang in the tree in front of our yard. We became very quiet. After being arrested within days, we started with the uh, death threats, uh, the hate mail. This was pre-punishment. You know, you haven't even been uh, stood in front of the, the first judge in a case, and yet, you know, you're treated like you're some sort of a dangerous criminal. We're on watch lists now. We are, well, what they called us was a domestic terrorist. I had spotted a black SUV out this window. We saw him parked there, kind of surveilling the house a uh, number of times. You're the first person that we've shown this to. When uh, we came home after being arrested, we were having trouble with the internet. We found this attached to our router. When he removed it off of that, put the router back to a normal status, all of our internet was fine. Oh, it was actually two units. It was? Yeah. Okay. Screwed together. Yeah, screwed together. I'm going to grab some photos of this and send it to a couple of former FBI agents that maybe will be able to identify the part. That siege was criminal behavior plain and simple, and it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. House Oversight Committee Democrats pointed out that most of the estimated 450 people who have been arrested so far are white, and many of them have backgrounds in law enforcement or the military. Over the past three years, hundreds of people, like the Munn family, have been labeled by the FBI and the Department of Justice as domestic terrorists. 
But do they really deserve to wear the moniker of terrorist? The idea of what government should control has changed drastically. There are some people who want government to micromanage everyday life. They want the nanny state. And that's only possible when you allow it to control everything. When I sat and watched the footage with my colleague, Joe Hanneman, you actually have a lot of different categories of people. You had a few groups of agitators, and a lot of the crowd was trying to stop those agitators from doing what they were doing. They're being labeled as the same group of people. And so as a journalist, for me, what was shocking was seeing how incredibly dishonest the media establishment was, making it appear that everybody there was rioting, to overthrow the government, there was just total chaos because the video footage did not show that. During the protests and riots on January 6, he tore down a fence that was separating police and protesters. The court used this to label his actions as terrorism. But the real question is, the acts of violence against police officers in the other riots taken just as seriously. FBI wrongly looked up info in this digital system for information about Americans and others more than 278,000 times in 2020 and early 2021. Can you assure the American people that the FBI is working just as hard to give equal justice of law to, to those kinds of things that are happening there? I mean, absolutely. We have, in both instances, opened hundreds of investigations. Domestic violent extremism is the greatest terrorism-related threat. Okay, so do you include Black Lives Matter and Antifa in that definition? Uh, uh, Congressman, I do not consider Black Lives Matter. And it is not in my province to, um, to address a particular case. As a JTTF agent, we were the ones getting all of the January 6th-related leads. Those weren't going to a normal criminal squad. Is there an inherent problem with the FBI's strategy to combat domestic terrorism? I wanted to find out how the government expanded its power in targeting Americans after January 6th, and why. Is there a definition of domestic extremism? Does the federal government define this term? <laughs> yes, they do. Every organization has its own definition. There is no singular definition of domestic extremist. When I was at the DNI in the National Counterterrorism Center, I had access to everything the FBI had on domestic extremism. After I left the DNI, I sat down and wrote basically an intelligence report on our country. Sent that document to the DNI to get it approved for release. DNI looked at it, FBI looked at it, DOD looked at it, CIA looked at it. They all approved it for release. They redacted about 15% of it. But none of what they redacted was actually classified information. It was all just embarrassing to the FBI. There were no, virtually no, real domestic extremists. They were all suspicions. 
there is a method in the FBI by which they are able to manipulate what the American people think is a big threat. You may be surprised to hear there is no specific federal law against domestic terrorism. Tonight, the FBI agents are demanding one. Last month, FBI Director Chris Wray told Congress domestic terrorism was on the rise. Just in the first three quarters of this year, uh, we've had more domestic terrorism arrests than the prior year. If domestic terrorism is made a federal crime, it could lead to more resources to prevent the next attack. That's a total lie. They, that's a total lie. You can't turn around and advocate for a federal domestic terrorism uh, law because you're just trying to get around the First Amendment. You either are going to defend the Constitution or you're not. A federal statute to go around the First Amendment will only make matters worse. I basically took these concerns to my leadership at the DNI, the National Counterterrorism Center, and I laid out my concerns about the desire of the FBI to get a domestic terrorism federal statute to basically get around the First Amendment. And they weren't comfortable with that. The national security mission for the FBI has a problem. And COINTELPRO that we saw in the 70s was the exact same thing. They were uh, spying on Martin Luther King. They were violating everybody's civil liberties, right? All to protect national defense to, for national security purposes. Fast forward to 2001. Now the big threat, Muslim violent extremism, Islamic violent extremism, because 9-11 happened. The country is in this massive catatonic state of fear. That's when the FBI really shifted into becoming an intelligence agency, thanks to the Patriot Act. Today we take an essential step in defeating terrorism. With my signature, this law will give intelligence and law enforcement officials important new tools to fight a present danger. Now what? They turn it inward and say, hey, call us and, and give us information on your neighbor if they're a mega Republican and say they're a terrorist. That, that should scare everybody of any political bent. One of the problems you have with terrorism is a lot of times you don't want to wait until the crime has been committed. You want to prevent the 9-11. You want to prevent the Boston bombing. And so the government created certain extrajudicial powers like the Patriot Act, Section 702, FISA, CISA. Under normal circumstances, there is you as an individual. And there's, of course, government and, you know, intelligence agencies. Standing between these two factors is the U.S. Constitution. But what the Patriot Act and CISA do is allow the government to go to this and to target you through it. Now, when they label the J6ers as people who have committed insurrection, it's not just name-calling. If you are slapped with that label, by the highest power in this country. That is a designator for this type of investigation. They'll admit that, that the First Amendment is the biggest barrier to catching domestic extremists. But here's why that narrative is resonating. I've been working in counterterrorism for years. This is 2016, 17 timeframe. I remember 
listening to them ranting and raving on the radio, and I felt this grip of fear in my heart, like, oh my God, they're right. There's terrorists around every corner. And I was, I was like, wait a second. And so I started looking at the numbers they were throwing around. They were throwing around that there were 30,000 gun-related deaths in the United States every year. 30,000. And I was like, wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. Well, that's a lie. 20,000 of those were suicides. Only 10,000 of them were homicides. The reason that domestic terrorism is opaque and inconsistent is because the vast majority of actual domestic terrorism, supposed, supposed domestic terrorism, is actually a mental health problem. And the FBI doesn't have a mandate to investigate people who are mentally ill. So what they did was is they started pressuring agents to mark cases as domestic extremism cases, even though that they clearly were not, because they needed to bump up their numbers. We're chasing down leads, we're reviewing evidence, combing through digital media to identify, investigate, and arrest anyone who broke the law that day. And our greatest partner in this investigation has been the American people themselves. The pressure to open as many domestic terrorism cases, especially January 6th cases as possible, is very real. Our justice system is supposed to be functioning in a way that helps flesh that out. The punishment is supposed to, to meet the crime. We're doing the exact opposite of that by misrepresenting literally half the population as violent extremists. We've had now dozens of whistleblowers come talk to House Republican staff on the Judiciary Committee. In fact, one of them is testifying in a transcribed interview as we speak. The first time I went to Congress was in November of 2021. I arrived at this point where I had no other choice. After the experiences I had had with my chain of command and them not doing anything about my legitimate concerns, I started taking those concerns to Congress every time. I arranged for my complaint to fall on the desks of the Office of Special Counsel, the Office of the Inspector General. Let me just say this, Director, I, I find that answer disturbing because Mr. Friend was a domestic terrorist investigator for you, and he was told by one of his superiors that January 6th was, I quote, a higher priority than pursuing child pornography cases. The investigation has really been all-consuming. There are people in government who don't want that picture filled out. And usually when that happens, you know that there's a reason for that. Good morning to y'all. We want to begin with the latest in the Justice Department investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Four people familiar with the matter telling the Washington... This is our actual criminal complaint. We were accused of being part of Q because of taking a 
photograph. And they had a field day, including the media, that we loaded our camper up and went to D.C. We passed that uh, in Virginia. If you actually look, there is a license plate, which is Virginia. Yeah. It was very hard to convince the judge that that, I don't have no idea who that is. It was almost they were desperate to have us connect with some sort of insurrectionist group. This was one of the uh, interview that my attorney had done where she was stating that she was not defending any January 6th defendants, but rather re-educate them. She was going to be giving me a list of books, a list of movies. Schindler's List was something that I had to start watching immediately. I was confused how Schindler's List in January 6th made a correlation. And when I addressed that to her, she said, this is why you need education. Because the District of Columbia is so heavily Democratic, upwards of 98% voted for Joe Biden, that's an anomaly right there. You probably won't find that anywhere else in the United States. That made it really impossible to get a fair trial. I don't know if every defendant moved for a change of venue, but it, it's close. I, I think that's been nearly unanimous. Defense attorneys across the board know that's the first big issue that they face, is how do you get over that, that built-in bias. Colton McAbee, Sheriff's Deputy, who tried to save Roseanne Bowen. He's been in jail for two years. He hasn't gone to trial yet. And they've denied petition after petition for him to have pre-trial release. We're uh, traveling to Tennessee, south of Nashville, to meet with and interview Sarah McAbee, who is the wife of Colt McAbee. I have not seen my husband in person since the day I left for work before he was apprehended. He has been serving time for almost a year and a half for something that he never did. If you would have told me a year ago that I would have still been having to do this today, I wouldn't have believed you. These are American citizens being held without due process, having their constitutional, their God-given, and their human rights violated. In America, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And he's an innocent man. And he has been punished for something that he never did. It's my right as an American and I'm going to fight for my husband, whatever means necessary in that aspect. The last hearing in front of the magistrate judge in Nashville was September the 8th and he released him on bond. Judge Friendly said, I don't see him being a danger to the community. He was never a flight risk. That was thrown out immediately. The government immediately appealed. It went into the hands of the D.C. court where he was assigned Judge Emmett Sullivan. Three weeks later, we went back in. It wasn't even a five-minute hearing. He said he's denied bond. There was a day when the Department of Justice would do their investigation first, marshal their evidence, then indict you. And here they seem to want to do the opposite. They're going to identify you on video, arrest you, and then figure out what the evidence is after that. I've seen 
hundreds of cases in my career having nothing to do with January 6th. And I've not seen, you know, detention decisions like some of the detention decisions that have been made in these January 6th cases. The decision to not release people is basically saying these people are so dangerous, there's no conditions that can safeguard the community. Former Williamson County detention officer was in the thick of it. He tried to drag an officer off towards the rioters. Another camera captures him shoving and fighting. I was so shocked when I heard the news because this isn't the Colton McBee that I know. Bill Shipley. It's an honor to nice meet, to meet you, you. I met defense attorney Bill Shipley in Washington. I asked for his help understanding Ronald Colton McAbee's case. He picks up with his right hand laying at his feet a police baton. I've tracked the video from the moment he picked it up, and then both hands are empty. It's like less than four seconds from start to finish. He's a deputy sheriff in Tennessee, courthouse security officer. He's trained in the use of that baton as a weapon. If he's jumping into the middle of this fight for the purposes of engaging in a battle with the police officers there who have batons, would he toss the baton aside? The process is the punishment, no question, in the sense that these defendants, some of them, are caught in sort of a catch-22. You know, nobody's sitting over there for two years because they're willing to plead guilty. You know, you cannot detain somebody pretty much indefinitely, not having been convicted of any crime. When it got moved to uh, D.C., it was a complete shift. The judge called him a terrorist. So it appears clearly to this court that the defendant is pulling the officer back into the crowd of other terrorists. The defendant, who's never testified, never said a word to the court, and the court, without any information, has just concluded my client's a terrorist. The condemnation. Yeah. I got up that morning and I went to go see him. I walked into the facility and they said, you're not allowed to see him. Your whole life changes drastically. Not only were you dealing with the fact of your husband being taken away from you, your house being ransacked, the people calling you insurrectionist and terrorist. Every day, it's a complete faith walk. Every day you wake up and you're like, how did I get out of bed today? Why are these men still being held? Why is my husband as an innocent person not released at home and able to continue on with his life? We have no idea what tomorrow brings, let alone what the next five to 10 years might look like of, is he gonna go to prison? I don't believe for his sake or any of these men, will they ever be what we consider normal again? Five counts, one being a 20-year prison felony for obstruction of justice and then four misdemeanors. We filed motions, asked for change of venue, and et cetera. They were all denied. I had no intent to enter. I didn't understand the grounds were restricted. That was totally not clear. And even entering the building itself was unclear because the doors were open from the inside and cops were allowing people in. So it seemed like that was just their crowd control measure at the time. Regardless, I physically had no ability to not enter the building. I was crushed inside. And any police officer that ever gave me an instruction, I immediately 
immediately followed without any incident. But I'm not sure why anyone's suggesting I did something that's worth a 20-year felony. <laughs> that's, that's totally insane. As I thought through every action that I took that I'm responsible for, I'm responsible for my actions but not others, and I understood I am not guilty of anything. I made the decision more than a year prior that I knew I was innocent and therefore I was going to stand on that innocence. I went to trial because I needed to stand up for truth and give a truthful witness. I did that not just to declare my own innocence. Standing on what I knew to be true was more important than that and it was the only thing that I was willing to I remember the first day of the trial, which is jury selection. It was shocking. Jury members are supposed to be, first of all, your peers, like your neighbors, people that see you on the street. I'm 3,000 miles away. Obviously, these people have never seen me in their life, but they know who I am or what I represent to them. And it's, it's clear that they hate me. And that hatred was so unmistakable and so inappropriate in a court of law. In an environment where I'm guilty on arrival, I've been summarily convicted by all of these people the moment I showed up. My attorney was a DC guy that politically speaking was really in the middle. That is his city, that is his environment, he knows all those people. He was very much from a similar state of mind as the jury members that were there. He'd reviewed the evidence carefully with me and he realized this man is innocent and I'm going to represent him as such and bring a clear case forward. The next day, the government started its opening arguments and brought its case against me. I think there were nine government witnesses, and eight of the nine were police officers. Most of the officers gave testimony of their experience in the Capitol building that day, most of whom didn't have any interaction with me at all. They just spoke and painted this very dramatic picture of terror and distress and harm, and some of them were injured and so forth. And by the end, my attorney turned to me and he said, this is why juries convict, because of emotional, bombastic testimony like this. Some of it may or may not be true, but all of it is obviously incredibly explosive. The entire thing was about the entire crowd and the entire day, and, and very little had to do with myself individually. I do recognize that some people did things they shouldn't have done, and that didn't make matters any better. It's just, you know, nuances required, the truth required all the elements that happened. My attorney brought the truth clearly and competently. This defendant, this person in front of you, this individual that needs to be judged on his actions and not on anyone else's, much less, you know, a CNN storyline. My whole team felt like it made a really significant impact on the judge and the jury. I was thinking that we had a real shot at getting an acquittal on the felony. How did that impact you when you heard guilty? My initial uh, reaction was sorrow and disappointment chiefly for my defense attorney. Someone chose the truth and the right action over a path of, of convenience. And for that to be just completely disregarded is just so detached from reality and from the truth. I certainly am facing a maximum potential of 23 years based on the charges that were convicted. 
I really want to see righteousness prevail and I really want to see the truth come to light and I really want to see actual justice um, accomplished for, for, for everyone. And uh, that's not happening right now. What's happened in America is that not public opinion, but institutional control is driving the United States in, in a direction that was never intended to the degree that they are saying to America, we are morally superior to the old America. This is a new America. And that gives us the right to use any means necessary to achieve a morally superior end. You are deplorable. You're irredeemable, you're a clinger, you're a semi-fascist, you're a crazy, you're an ultra-mega, and you don't have the right to object to the means that we're using. Monday, September 26th is the day that I had arranged with the new unit for me to report. I showed up there. I get ushered into a, a side office. I'm supposed to be protected from retaliation and you are bringing up things that I went to Congress about. I have to turn in my access badge, my FBI badge, my gun, my creds. I take my gun out of the holster and I'm about to unload it and this guy just grabs my arm with both of his hands and takes the gun out of my hand. I had a meeting with the special agent in charge, the SAC for Jacksonville Field Office, Sherry Onks. She insisted that I held a really fringe belief with regard to the way January 6th cases were being handled. And she suggested that I do some soul searching to decide if I really wanted to be uh, with the FBI going forward. The following week, on Monday, I walked into the office. At that point, they told me that my Security clearance was suspended and I was escorted from the FBI premises. As soon as we were in the, the news, that's immediately when uh, contracts were canceled, uh, jobs were lost. People would literally call our boss and tell him that uh, we were not allowed at facilities because we were domestic terrorists, that we were violent. We went to our boss immediately and handed her everything that we had, showing that they were petty misdemeanors, um, that none of them were violent. We had approximately 70% of our income cut within that first year. Right now we travel approximately two hours outside of an area to find work. It changed our whole way we approached life. We became very cautious. It's almost, you feel like Big Brother is watching you. Anything you can say can be taken out of context. You have to stay away from the word patriot now because that's a uh, terrorist organization. Patriot is somebody who loves their country. They believed in their country. They believed in what it stood for. And it was that important to them. They loved it that much that they would give up, and many did give up everything for it. That is a bad person now. That is somebody you need to be afraid of. I recall a, a morning 
met, I was in a dark place and had a very hard time getting out of bed. Christy left her children with her husband and drove across town and knelt down and prayed with me. You can't be an FBI special agent if you don't have a security clearance. So at that point, uh, I realized I was going to be on a path of discipline that might end in my separation from the FBI. I had already known how serious it was. And they took my creds and my badge and gone, I knew. It's not easy to become an FBI agent. I was willing to give that up for that oath, the oath I made to the Constitution and to this country. And I've lived that way ever since my first deployment to Iraq and then my second to Afghanistan. So I don't care what they do to me, but I do care what they do to my family. The FBI knew I was in the middle of a transfer. When we sold our house, they packed up all of our belongings and shipped them to Virginia. Between September 26th and early November, we basically are in a standstill on how to get our belongings. My kids don't even really fully understand what's going on. We were living in an RV because we didn't have anywhere else to live. My daughter, Gwen, she was six at the time. She came up to me crying and she said, I just want my bike. Why? Why can't I have my bike? And all I could tell her was, I don't know. A lot of times late at night, if I'm working on stuff, it'll catch up with me. I'll have trouble sleeping. The kind of stuff that just doesn't happen in America is now becoming commonplace. You hear these details and talk to the defendants and their spouses and their children. It can be very overwhelming. This is so uh, antithetical to what this country is supposed to stand for. It's the one place in the world that they know they can have their rights protected and be able to speak their mind and participate in politics without being jailed. And suddenly the United States doesn't fit that profile. That kind of dynamic can't continue without something giving. It gives me great concern because it's, it's a different America than I grew up in. Thank you, Father, for bringing us all together safely once again. Through you that we thank you. We just ask that you would bless our time together and bless this food that you've always provided for us. Uplift those who are in this room together. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dad. Do you want sour cream, honey? Yes, please.
Hmm? We've been downgraded, so we don't we don't have an officer anymore. We have a technician, I under, as I understand mm -hmm. it. Correct. If we go somewhere, we still just have to notify them. Mm -hmm. When we get to the point of actually looking at the move, we will have to get permission from our probation officer that would receive us in Wisconsin. Thank you, Joel. In mid-2023, the Munn family decided to move out of Borger, Texas, a place they once called home. They found it has become increasingly hostile and isolating. Could you set that over there for me very careful? Thank you. I'm nervous for sure. It's, um, I looked it up this morning, 672 days. I know he's nervous too. I really appreciate it. Have a good night. After two years apart, Sarah Maccabee was able to visit her husband, Colt Maccabee, in the DC jail. It was a good visit to see him, even if it was only for an hour. There are things that happen where you get angry about, you get emotional about, where you're like, you know, how much longer can I continue this fight? But then you're like, you're not doing this for yourself. I pray that these men come out and, as a group and can say, let's go and reform things. Let's make sure that this never happens in America again. I was willing to lose that career, knowing what would happen by causing a family to become homeless in the manner in which they did. It only strengthened my resolve to stand firm on the truth. I have a hope for my girls that they're gonna grow up in a free United States that for all of its errors and sins along the way is still free. And that's why it's incumbent on me and others to keep pushing. And honestly, for more FBI agents and other government employees to say, man, that looks tough, but it's the right thing. Right. So there's, there's quite a bit in the universe. After five months of effort, so far, we, we managed to broadcast it. some of the long hidden January 6th security video. We want to get a big picture. We want to understand how things developed, how violence developed, and, and any trends that we might see. Well, in the short time we've had access, we found many videos that uh, defense attorneys have not been able to get their hands on that have been withheld that could be considered exculpatory evidence. Again, we'll see how they end up using it. This is going to be of great interest to, to people who are are still being prosecuted. Um, so those are all questions they're gonna have to wrestle with as more of this footage gets out. The critical feature of our gathering today is to better understand how people were treated in the follow-on to January 6th. And in that regard, I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome our witnesses. 
I'm only standing before this committee because my nephew hanged himself. He had struggled from the start to live with shame and the damage to his beloved family and many friends caused not by guilt, but those criminalizing the First Amendment. Hello, my name is John Strand. I refuse to take a plea because the government's statement of fact in that plea was nefariously false and because I was not guilty of any criminal intent. The DOJ's dishonest distortions of my free speech to frame me as a criminal and mislead a jury have led to my wrongful conviction of serious crimes. And a DC judge's fury at my public criticism of the government's behavior has landed me years in prison. That is the textbook definition of fascism. If you cannot see the harshly stark contrast of the unprecedented persecution inflicted on so many J6 defendants, then you are willfully and shamefully blind. After months of being suspended without pay, the FBI whistleblowers we interviewed were called to testify before Congress. Today it's the American people. They're the target. You don't, you're not politically correct, you're not in line with what they think should be the political position, the proper position. You could be a target. And maybe what's just as frightening is if you're one of the, the good employees in our government who come forward to talk about the targeting, you then become a target. We've talked to over two dozen whistleblowers, and today three of those brave whistleblowers and a lawyer who represents them will tell us their story. My colleagues have brought in these former agents, men who lost their security clearances because they were a threat to our national security, who, out of malice or ignorance or both, have put partisan agenda above the oath they swore to serve this country and protect its national security. Individuals have been determined not, not to be whistleblowers. These are not whistleblowers. They've been determined by the agency not to be whistleblowers. Are you deciding to decide that they are whistleblowers? The chair is recognizes Chairman it. Jordan, yeah. Ranking Member Plaskett, I think it's important that we recognize this hearing for what it actually is. Make no mistake, this hearing is a vehicle to legitimize the events of January 6th. It was a shocking moment of political violence, and many of us on this dais, including myself, were there that day. Mr. Allen, is your account at Marcus A9705645? That is absolutely not my account. Okay, that's not your account. Well, on December 5th, 2022, an account under the name Marcus Allen retweeted a tweet that said, That quote, is not my account, ma'am. You haven't let me finish the question, you might sir. Have been the football player. It's really not fact finding, it's just, just political theater. Thank you for addressing FBI malfeasance and allowing me to speak today. Aside from that point of gratitude, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, and I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. I'm here today because even though I am wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. I couldn't knowingly continue on this path silently without speaking out against the weaponization I witnessed, even if it meant losing my job, my career, my livelihood, my family's home, and now, my anonymity. It's up to members of this committee current and former FBI employees, and indeed all Americans, to ensure that the weaponization of our own government against the people comes to an end. Working as an FBI special agent was my dream job. My whistleblowing was apolitical and in the spirit of upholding my oath. The FBI is incentivized to work against the American people and in dire need of drastic reform. 
I sacrifice my dream job to share this information with the American people. I humbly ask all the members to do your jobs and consider the merit of what I have presented. Thank you. The truth is like a lion. You let it loose. You don't need to defend it. It will defend itself. And this is really, in essence, what I'm trying to do is to get this information out. And if it, if it is truth, it will defend itself and it will stand up on its own against constructed narrative or propaganda. After the hearing, it really did take off. Heading into the hearing, I honestly thought we would do that and then head back to Wisconsin like nothing ever changed. More and more people are starting to say, hey, what is going on in an agency like the FBI? If they can do this to their own employees, what can they do to the rest of us? I can sleep at night and then know that I did the right thing, and that's really, at the end of the day, all I, I want to teach my kids. I, I want them to be smart, I want them to be successful, I want them to be well-read and liked, but if I can teach them to be good, then you know, I can live with that. Ashley Babbitt, Roseanne Boyle, Kevin Greeson, it's 9 p.m. on a Monday. This has become a nightly ritual. Supporters gather outside the D.C. jail. They pray for the January 6th defendants and sing the national anthem. They want their stories to be heard. Even from behind bars, defendants flash the lights to share this patriotic moment with supporters outside. But the battle continues. As I look back at all the people I've met on this journey, each of their stories is a reminder of the challenges we face in post-January 6th America. But the most inspiring part is that all of this hatred, fear, and widening division might have a solution. I've been amazed by the families who became closer, stronger in faith, and determined to triumph over any tragedy or injustice. I've seen firsthand how tribulation can lead to hope and hope does not disappoint. This story is not just about January 6th. It's about upholding the Constitution of the United States of America, the revered text that guarantees our freedoms, our freedom of speech, our right to due process, freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances, and the cherished ideal that we are innocent until proven guilty. These fundamental rights are worth fighting for.
Thank you for watching the real story of January 6th, The Long Road Home. I encourage you to share this film with as many people as possible. It's important that the information presented in this documentary gets the widest possible audience. When I first started writing about January 6th, back in late 2021, I had little idea just how big and complex this subject would prove to be. It quickly became apparent that the full story of what happened that day was not being told to the American people. At the Epic Times, we constantly renew our commitment to uncovering the hidden stories and ignored details of January 6th. Our task in telling the January 6th story must often overcome a deeply ingrained narrative influenced by sharply divisive politics. Many media outlets, social commentators, and politicians insist that January 6th was an insurrection undertaken by wild-eyed supporters of former President Donald J. Trump. The truth is that January 6th defies simple explanations, well-rehearsed slogans, and scripted narratives. Understanding January 6th requires an examination of what brought people to Washington that day. The 2020 presidential election raised serious security and integrity questions. The anger those questions generated motivated the huge crowds on January 6th. Simply dismissing those concerns as conspiracy theories, baseless claims, or misinformation only increases distrust, promotes division, and widens the societal chasm. Much of what happened that day has been hidden and suppressed. To fully understand this historic day, we need to unearth all of the details, find all of the videos, and publish as many personal testimonies as possible. That is why we made this documentary and why our coverage will continue unabated in print, online, and on television. Three years and many hundreds of stories later, the effort to find the truth of January 6th has really just begun. Only through this painstaking and tireless process can we truly bring January 6th into focus. Please share by scanning the QR code or go to the URL below. Let all your friends and family know about the real story of January 6th. Thank you for your support.
Stronger than the day before Tomorrow you'll fight for more